Dr. Everett Hufford is with us this evening. He has a uh, extensive resume, very well known in and out of the Brotherhood, both in and out of this country, uh, none of which I will bother you with, because all you need to know, and be thrilled he is here, he is Elaine's brother. <laughs> We're happy you're here. I heard uh, Friday that he was going to be in town. He had a meeting in Oklahoma uh, this morning, and uh, he was going to be here visiting Elaine, and that caused a dilemma if he was going to be here this evening. My sermon, we've been talking about the Sabbath and Sabbath-keeping and uh, Jewish traditions and a lot of that. Uh, so I could go ahead with that and give you a book report on what I've read in a couple of hours uh, with a guy in the audience that's been studying that all his life, has lived in the Mideast, uh, knows all about Jewish and Muslim cultures and uh, all of that. So that was not a tough call. I said, let's let him talk, uh, and I think you will enjoy it. So I asked Brother Effort if he would uh, just tell us anything he wants to about modern-day Judaism and the, the traditions and the things that we've been talking about. So he's going to take it wherever he wants, and it'll be uh, much better than what you might have got. So Brother Effort, come speak to us for a while. Thank you, Brother Steve. I uh, I don't want to feel better, but fortunately I had a blank check, so it won't be just uh, so much about modern Judaism as much as it is about Judaism in the time of Christ and Jesus' tension with it. Because Jesus was tough. We often view the toughness of Christ at the cross, you know, from Gethsemane and the trial and the cross. But when you start looking at his ministry, I think you'll gain a, a new appreciation as well of how really an incredible challenge that Jesus had coming into the world that he came into. And I'll be doing some things on that tonight. First of all, I do appreciate being with you. And uh, uh, you, you may know uh, our mother's in the hospital right now. And I really appreciate the uh, elders uh, went up there this afternoon and prayed with her. So Elaine, I definitely appreciate your love and care for uh, care for her and Elaine and Daryl are very well loved here too, and that's always good to see. I lived in Galilee for five years, and then uh, Elaine lived in uh, Jordan most of her time in Jerusalem area. Uh, I was there some of that time, and then my wife and I moved back over and lived in Galilee. And we, even as we were teenagers and younger at home, we would spend our uh, a weekend. Of course, we were out of school on Friday since. A lot of our students in the school that we were with uh, were Muslims, so we were out Friday and Sunday. And uh, Fridays, we would take trips. And uh, particularly uh, as we were living in Galilee, we would do that too. Every Friday or Saturday, we'd go take a picnic and go to some archaeological site and read the scriptures on it. And So we started at a fairly early age of putting the scriptures in context, you know, in geographical and historical context. So when I read scriptures, I, I, these are things that just come to my mind as I read it. And I'm just going to share a little bit of that this, uh, this afternoon. And I'm going to spend about half my time in John, the first six chapters of John, to just show you how offensive John is to a Jew. Because we don't see the gospel of John as very offensive. I mean, that's the gospel of love. And, you know, we just really, you know, appreciate it. <laughs> Everything in those first six chapters are very offensive to Jews. And so we'll, 
we'll see that. But before I get there, I want to back up and look at uh, Jesus uh, in Galilee some because he had uh, he, he wasn't anti-Jewish by any means. I mean, he was born into a Jewish uh, family and environment. He said, I went to the house of Israel first. He had a love for Israel every bit as much as uh, Paul had a love for the Jewish people. But they didn't always have a love for him. In fact, Steve's introduction tonight was very gracious, far more gracious than the introduction Jesus himself had when he came. We're told in John chapter 1, he came to his own and they not only did not recognize him, they did not accept him. So he confronted some Jewish, a lot of Jewish traditions. Let me, let me give an example of, of his, the Jewish context he's in. If you look at Matthew chapter 4. In uh, verse 23, we find that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. He was in all of those synagogues. And I'm going to show you some of them. Uh, They were all over Galilee. And then in chapter 9, it says Jesus went about all their cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus knew the people in Galilee. He didn't go set up on a hill under a tree and expect everybody to just come to him and find him. Jesus went to their villages. This is before Interstate and 7-Eleven. Even the the, the half of the year, those roads are dusty and hot. Uh, the, The thing that you'll encounter in Galilee are these thorn bushes that are the worst thorn bushes I've ever seen. It's easy to come up with a crown of thorns. In that part of the world. Because they are dry and dusty and thorny. And he did a lot of walking. A lot of walking. But he did go to some of the best part of that land. And we'll see that here in just a second. This is a map of the region of Galilee. And it shows upper and lower Galilee. If you look at the, you'll see, if you can see Cana on that. Cana is in lower Galilee. And the, that red line that goes up. That area up above that is Upper Galilee. And what that, that red triangle, that's a rough triangle, the area that Jesus was ministering in was surrounded by the Romans. They had three huge bases, north, south, and west. On the north, they had Caesarea Philippi, huge base. You know, this is where Jesus went up there to rest a little bit, and he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, thou art... The Christ, the son of the living God, that's where that happened. Then you go over to the west on the coast, you have Caesarea Maritima. And that was the Roman headquarters. They had two Roman legions there. In fact, two of those legions joined one from Jericho and one from further south when they conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. Almost 80,000 Romans descended on Jerusalem in 70 AD. Half of them came from Caesarea. And then south of the Sea of Galilee, you have a town called Scythopolis. It was the Old Testament site of Beit Shean. This is where Saul and his sons, their bodies were hung on the walls of the city when they were killed. And David went in at night, and the people did, and, and got their bodies. So they were surrounded by Romans. There's no reference of Jesus ever going to Scythopolis or near it. He'd probably pass it as he would go to Jerusalem if he went down the Jordan Valley route. But then in the middle, between The Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean is Sepphoris. This is the town where Joseph probably did most of his so-called carpentry work. I say so-called carpentry because the word means cut with a chisel. 
you can either cut stone or wood with a chisel. And if you've ever been there, you think, I think they're going to do more stonework around here than they do carpentry. Otherwise, the buildings wouldn't still be, the ruins of a lot of it wouldn't still be there. And it's about an hour, hour and a half walk over the hill of Nazareth going down into the valley of the Batov Valley to Sepphoris. And that was the Roman capital of that region of Galilee that during the time of Christ, Herod Antipas was building a new capital over in the town called Tiberias, which gave a name to the Sea of Galilee. It was also called the Sea of Tiberias. But when you, when you look at references to Jesus and Galilee and all these different places, you'll find that associated with these places are references to try to introduce you to who Jesus really is. Because I think it's important to know who he is before you know what he's going to do for you. You need to know who he is if you're going to be his disciple and follow him. And so you find these examples of Jesus goes from Galilee down to Jordan to the, it's a place called Bethany across the Jordan. Now, there was a Bethany near Jerusalem, but there was also a Bethany down across Jordan. And that's where John the Baptist did most of his baptizing and teaching. And the map that's an insert, there's a star and it's just across from Jericho, and that's where Bethany uh, is located. Last summer, uh, on our tour group, we went down to that site, and Bethany across the Jordan is across the Jordan on the Jordanian side of the boundary. And they have now fixed it up as kind of a little baptismal place, and they've got churches there and stuff. And we were on the Jewish side, the Israeli side, and we were down there with a group, and there was a group that got there before us, and they had a baptism, and they started singing a song. And I, I can't. Re- I think it was just as I am. And right across, I mean, it's not 20 feet across the Jordan. There was a, a Korean group having a baptism, and as they finished the baptism, they started singing the same song in English and Korean. You know that how interesting that was. Then when I when I turned around, and told my group it's time to go. The man who was leader of this American group turns around and goes, "What's Hufford doing here?" He was a preacher from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and he had a church group there. So uh, we meet our brothers and sisters everywhere in the world. Then John sees Jesus a few, a few days later, and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, that's about as Jewish a statement as you can make. Because it was the Lamb that was slaughtered and the blood was taken, and it was offered for sins in the temple. And he's saying, now, he is the Lamb of God. There's no longer a need for a lamb anymore. That's a somewhat of an affront to Judaism. And it was hard to accept because they'd rather go with the lamb sacrifice than with Jesus. The sad reality is that since 70 AD, there's been no lamb offered because there's been no temple since August 7th, 70 AD. I think as you find him going through the villages of Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom, part of the good news is he is the lamb that takes away the sins and he's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't need a temple in Jerusalem and you don't need a lamb sacrifice for your sins. Because without it, you'll do what the Jews have been doing for 2,000 years now, crying and wailing at the wailing wall, wanting to rebuild the temple so they can have a sacrifice for sin. That's kind of a hopeless agenda. Jesus leaves Galilee and he calls Philip, Andrew, Peter from Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida was a a town just east of Capernaum 
And the Jordan River comes into the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida on the east side, Capernaum on the west side. And that's a big deal. Because Bethsaida was on the Gentile side, Capernaum was on the Jewish side. Bethsaida was under Philip's rule. Capernaum was under Herod Antipas' rule. Both of them are sons of Herod the Great. But they each had their own tax. Their own tax system. And it was these followers of Jesus... You'll hear them say, yes, truly, he is the son of God, the king of Israel. And then he goes to Cain of Galilee, you remember, for a wedding. And that's where he did the first sign to reveal his glory. And then he bases out of Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 4, you'll find in verse 12, he starts saying, it's very clear, he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. And then he has this ministry in Galilee. And I'll show you some of that area in just a moment. And several things you find about Jesus coming out of Capernaum. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they ask, when he both forgives sins and heals a man on the Sabbath. And then he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Upper and lower Galilee. Jesus is not only serving in both areas of upper and lower Galilee. But he's also serving over in the Gentile area, as you'll see uh, from this picture here. This is one of my favorite. This is an aerial, aerial view of uh, the Sea of Galilee looking uh, sort of northeast. On the far side is Golan Heights. Over to the left, you can actually see the snow on Mount Hermon. And down below, in about the middle of the picture is where Tiberius would be. And then on the right, uh, the left Mid-left would be all of this region of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. That was the Jewish corner. That's where all these villages were from there on up into the hills. Jesus spent a lot of time uh, in that area. We know he went and prayed a lot. He could have had this view. This is sun coming up over the Sea of Galilee or under one of these trees on the north side, northwest side, as he goes off to himself to pray. This is a picture of the northwest side from the north looking back west. And you can see a, a hill right in the bottom right-hand side of the picture here. And it's an angle where it's very clear a hill. And this is very likely the place of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the only typical or obvious hill that's right there in that region. And if you go on around the Sea of Galilee, you'll pass Migdal, where Mary Magdalene was from. And then you've got right in the middle at the top, there's a valley with steep cliffs. Those are the cliffs of Arbel. And that's the place from which the zealots would fire down on the Romans and try to disrupt their travel. Because the road or the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, went down that valley and they could disrupt uh, the Roman traffic and cause them a lot of grief. Two slides of Capernaum. This is an area view of Capernaum before... A big church building was built right in the middle of that, where that octagonal pattern is. On the right is the temple, I mean the uh, synagogue, excuse me, of, of Capernaum. One of the synagogues where Jesus was embedded. He spent a lot of time teaching at the synagogue. He even healed somebody there on the Sabbath. Here's another view of it. But with uh, there's a wall there, and beyond that wall is some more uh, of the city excavated. And just past that wall uh, was a Roman bathhouse, which was uh, a rather interesting discovery 
that kind of confirmed an unusual relationship between the Romans and the Jews in Capernaum that you wouldn't have anything close to that in Jerusalem. None at all. You remember a centurion even helped build the synagogue. I'm sure the Pharisees in Jerusalem could not believe what they heard. To think that a Roman would have that kind of relationship with the Jews in Capernaum would be very tough to believe. And then there's the millstone. Here's one here. There's another one. Whoop, I took it out. I was was shortening it. I thought I had two pictures, but when you've seen one, you've seen them all. They're about this big around. And the, the most, the harshest thing Jesus ever said. I think the, undoubtedly the harshest thing he ever said in his teaching here in Galilee was this. If you cause one of these little children to stumble, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and, you, and be, that person should be cast into the Sea of Galilee. Now that's something you may expect from the mafia in Chicago. But that's harsh. But Jesus had a concern for the influence adults have on children. He wants these children to be safe. You don't cause a one of them to stumble. You care for them and protect them. And I, I like the fact that in the churches of Christ, we do a lot for children. This should, this should be a safe place. Always be a safe place for children. We have VBS for children. We have classes for children. We love children. Not so they'd be quiet and out of our way. Because Jesus did. And because they're precious to us. And you find this is very much part of the teaching of Christ. This is from the cliff of Arbel, looking down at Migdal all the way around to Capernaum on that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. And he went to the synagogues. This is an aerial view of Chorazim. There was a synagogue there right in the middle of the picture. You can see the outline of it. If it's too far away, I'll take you to the ground. Here it is from the ground. And one thing interesting about the synagogue at Chorazim is they found the seat of Moses. Remember when Jesus went to the temple, I mean, went, keep on saying, went to the synagogue in Nazareth. He read from Isaiah. He sat down and said, this has been fulfilled in your presence today. The Jewish custom was you stand to read the law. In fact, you stand facing Jerusalem and everybody faces Jerusalem when they're reading the law. Then you put it aside and the rabbi will then sit down and begin to give his commentary on the law which is a good custom because it, it sort of shows a distinction between what the words of God are and the words of the interpreter and the translator and the rabbi and the commentator. We may know that when Jesus did that, they didn't like what he said. He said, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And the, the text from Isaiah really did describe the ministry of Jesus as he said in the seat of Moses. But this is actually, it even has the inscription on it this, in Hebrew, the seat of Moses. This is Moron, another one of those villages where he went into all those villages. Has the synagogue there. The man standing in the doorway of, of, the, uh, of this synagogue was Dr. Uh, Jim Strange, who for 10 years excavated synagogues all in northern Galilee. He spent 10 years, he's a professor from the University of Southern Florida, and just did, that, that was a, just a major project of his, is uh, excavating a lot of these synagogues. Unfortunately, this is one at Baram, uh, unfortunately, none of them are first century except this one and the one at Masada. This is at Gamla. Gamla is on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. 
Gamla is, it looks like a camel's hump. That's where it gets its uh, name, Gamla. And right in the middle of this hill, if, if you come down from the top of the hill, about toward the middle of it, uh, there's a ridge. That's where the synagogue is. And the insert is a picture of that synagogue. It's a first century synagogue. And it's on the border of the Jewish Gentile region. In fact, it would be surrounded some by Gentiles, but it was certainly well preserved and well protected. Now let's look at John. I show that to say, as the scripture says, he was in the synagogues. He was very Jewish. And he observed Jewish custom. And they were much more receptive of him in Galilee than they were in Jerusalem. Because the context of John, at least these first few chapters... Or in Jerusalem, and the Jews in Jerusalem had a different attitude than the Jews in Galilee. A lot of reasons for it. Uh, they didn't like paying tax to the temple in Galilee. It's okay for, the, for them to do it in Judea. They're at the temple all the time. But the folks in Galilee, they may make it once a year if they can. But they still have to pay the temple tax. And so they send temple guards to Galilee to force them to pay the half-shekel temple tax. Then they have to pay tax to Herod Antipas, and then they have to pay Roman tax. And if you want to make people unhappy with you, just keep taxing them. So they were not happy with the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. They were not happy with the Romans. So you can see why they were very excited and very receptive of Jesus, a possible king of the Jews. Chapter 1 of John We find that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No big deal to you. It is if you're a Jew reading this. Because for the Jew, in the beginning was the law. And the law was with God, and the law was God, and the law never became flesh and dwelt among us. The law could only be handled by the priest and the high priest. And it was kept protected in the temple. And there was a wall around it to keep the Gentiles out. And on and on it goes. The word of God busted through all of that. And made himself known. And John tried to find one word to describe this, this amazing relationship with God that he's now experienced through Jesus from Galilee. And the word, word, one word he could find was glory. We have seen The honor, the glory of God, full of grace and truth. I never heard anybody say that about the law. Never heard anyone say that about the high priest. And you see a tension from the very first chapter. You go to the second chapter and Jesus does something in the temple you don't normally do and live to tell about it. He starts running the money changers out of the temple. You know the story. And... That was probably okay. What made it worse is what he said. In verse 19, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, or this temple will be destroyed, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. What are you talking about? Well, we know what he was talking about. He was talking about himself. Now, what do you hear him say? If you're a Jew and you're, you're, all your hopes are centered around the temple, and you know your history. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and they went into Babylonian captivity. In fact, it had been destroyed a number of times, some of it fully rebuilt, some of it repaired. It had been raided, all kinds of stuff. If God lived in that temple, he needed a better security system. 
He didn't protect it too well. And then you come to this Herod's temple. What was in the Holy of Holies? Where was the Ark of the Covenant? Hmm. Wasn't it taken by the Babylonians? It was empty. So here they had been worshiping, and the Holy of Holies didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant in it. So not a, from our perspective, not a whole lot would have been lost. But Jesus compared himself to the temple. It's sort of like you choose Jesus or you choose the temple. A tough choice. Him, the temple, will be destroyed. He will be crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. That's tough for someone whose faith is centered around a temple. Then Nicodemus comes to him and this is another challenge because something very important to Jews to this very day is the, that your mother is Jewish. The state of Israel is still very, it's probably one of the most racist states Nations in the world, you cannot be a new immigrant to Israel and get citizenship unless your mother is Jewish, period. So if you're born of a Jewish mother, you're okay. And you can come and do Olei Chadash. You can come and do become a new immigrant to Israel. So imagine what that means when Nicodemus now meets with Jesus and he says, twice, you must be born from above. I realize NIV translated born again. The word again is not in Greek anywhere. The word in Greek is you must be born from above. In opposition to what? To being born from below. It's not important that your mother is Jew or any other nationality. What's important is that you are born of God and born from above. And if your religious identity has always been based on who your mother was, you can imagine how this would be received. And he didn't just say it once. He said it twice. And certainly Nicodemus had a hard time understanding that one because he was, he was deeply embedded within the Jewish tradition. If that isn't enough, chapter 4, you find him aiding and abetting the enemy, talking to a Samaritan woman in Samaria. Bad enough, but then what he says makes it even worse. Because she says, where's the place to worship? Jerusalem or here on Mount Gerizim, where they, they've always had their Samaritan temple? <laughs> and what Jesus said, the time is coming and now is. For neither in this place nor in Jerusalem is the place to worship. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. Whoa. You mean Jerusalem is no longer the center of faith and the presence of God? If the disciples, the, the apostles that had been, they were in town, remember? <laughs> if they had heard that, I can't imagine the look on their face. It was bad enough by the time you get to Mark 13 and Matthew 24 when he tells them the temple is going to be destroyed. You know, they were in shock. Because they were bragging on how beautiful the stones were of the temple. Remember that? And they could, all he could do is come up to him and say, would you mind telling us when this is going to happen? Jerusalem is no longer the holy city. It's not the only place to worship. You don't have to make a pilgrimage there every year. Basically, if you become a disciple of Christ, it is absolutely irrelevant whether there's a temple in Jerusalem or not. Because the center of Christianity is Christ, not a geographical location. So anywhere Christ is, there is God. 
So a temple can come and go. It's fine. It's sad. It's tragic. Beautiful building. But that's not where our faith lies. And it was certainly not the mission of Christ to reinvigorate a commitment to one place on the face of the earth as the only place to reach God. And then in chapter 5, if that wasn't enough, and we do know that Stephen and Paul actually got the message in chapter 4 that we don't need the temple. You remember in the Temple Mount area, Stephen says, our God doesn't live in temple made with human hands and that really upset them and enough to kill him. And then Paul says the same thing on, the, on Mars Hill as he points to the Parthenon and says, our God doesn't live in temples made with hands. There's just something about human nature. We want to build our temples. But that's not what Christianity is. And so Jesus was tough. In the heart of Judaism, he challenges the very foundation of their faith because these things had trumped their relationship with God. And then they take, he takes on the Sabbath, chapter 5. He broke the Sabbath and he called God his Father, which to them was blasphemous. And now you begin to see the story telling us because of this, they start plotting to kill him. It wasn't that he had a problem with Sabbath. He was in the synagogues all in Galilee on the Sabbath. He didn't make a big deal about that. But what he was challenging was, your priorities are so messed up. If you're more concerned about keeping the Sabbath and not healing this poor soul who's been an invalid all of his life or been blind all of his life, you have lost the heart of God. If that wasn't enough, chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread. That bread, that manna, that was so important to them. Some of it was even in the Ark of the Covenant that didn't exist at that time. But that manna was so important in Passover, that, the, the concept of the bread. But he says, no, I am the bread of life. And I'm sure, obviously when a Jew reads these first six chapters, what are they going to do? These are hard things to accept. I doubt there's too many Jews in our audience this evening. This may not be that tough for you. But what was tough for you? What was the tradition that you found hard to give up as a disciple of Jesus? What was something that you had that had become your temple that was hard for you to give up? Or something unseen and holy. When you rather prefer something visual and concrete. But yet that could be destroyed by anywhere from the Babylonians to the Romans. Our relationship with Jesus will always challenge the traditions of men. So when I, when I read John and think of him in the context of the Jesus I knew that was went to all the villages of Galilee. I see someone who came with an extremely difficult mission and task. He didn't complain. He didn't whine. He didn't lose heart. Maybe he didn't do that because he stayed in constant contact with his father. Because one thing you find embedded in John chapter 5 is this beautiful statement where Jesus says, I do only what I see the Father doing. I do nothing of my own accord. 
I think as disciples of Christ, we are constantly challenged with that reality. How much of what we do is shaped by the culture we're in? How much is shaped by history that is often repeating itself and getting the same bad results? When Jesus comes into our life and we become a disciple of Christ, things radically change. I've been a disciple of Jesus for 53 years. And God is good. It hasn't been easy. But my journey has been extremely easy compared to that of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the day he arrived till the day he ascended. He didn't come to make people happy and he didn't come to be happy. He didn't come by accident. He came with an intentional purpose to be a blessing. To fulfill the vision God had from the very beginning of time and in the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 12, that through the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And we know who that seed is. It's Jesus Christ. If you've not been blessed by him, please give more thought to it. If you have been blessed by him and tonight, maybe something of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus has challenged something in your life. Give it some deep thought. Steve will be up here at front if you want someone to pray with you. And I'm sure any of the elders here would be more than willing to help you in your journey as a disciple of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from Galilee. Let's stand and sing.